Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by GoSeed. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In this episode, Charlie Morey, an agricultural journalist in Dublin, Ireland, talks about Irish regenerative farming practices, some of the biggest struggles that farmers in Ireland and other parts of Europe face, and how U.S. farmers can learn from them. So if you want to just start out and just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of how you got to where you're at today, why don't we start there? So I was brought up on an arable farm in the Isle of Man. Um, and, you know, growing up, I was very kind of aware of everything that was going on and was quite, I suppose, heavily involved with the farm. We originally just had 250 acres um, and yeah, it was purely arable. And then in about 2008, um, it was around the time of like the recession and everything like that. It was quite bad timing, really. Um, the just 250 acres was just not a big enough farm to really make any money on. So we um, took a bit of a gamble and ended up buying the next door farm. So from that, we then ended up with about 600 acres, which again is just purely arable. Um, and we also diversified into having a livery yard at home. So we had horses there and there's 26 horses there at home now, which kind of just, you know, helped really with the business. And we were very lucky in the fact because we were an arable farm, we were able to make our own hay, our own bedding as byproducts of the crops we were already growing. Um, and then I ended up going into radio and journalism. And that's kind of like how I'm here today, really. Cool. So you work um, with Agriland. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that company and kind of what you guys do? Yeah, sure. So Agriland is an agri-media company in Ireland and they're absolutely fantastic. They cover all aspects of agriculture across Ireland and also in the UK. Um, So yeah, we're kind of everywhere really, to be honest with you. It's dairy, sheep, cows, um, tillage. So at home I'd call it arable, but here it's tillage. Um, and also just it's constantly keeping up with EU regulations. That's another thing that's different for me being in Ireland now is because on the Isle of Man and the UK, obviously with Brexit, it doesn't affect us at all. So coming back into the EU and trying to like navigate your head around it after being out of it for a while was quite interesting. So yeah, that's our um, Agriland does. It's all online. Um, and actually it's really cool because it's the one agri like outlet media, I suppose, that you don't have to pay for a subscription to go and see the articles or anything like that. Um, they also do quite a lot of video and yeah, that's what we do. Awesome. So I'm also really curious about some of the investigative work that you've done, um, sort of into like the future of farming and the Isle of Man. Uh, are you able to talk a little bit about some of the things you found there? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's very scary, to be honest with you, I find, because governments like to complain about everything and also people do. But the most important thing for everyone is food security. If you don't have food, there is no future. And it's it's really that simple. And on the Isle of Man, it's now such a diminishing market as there aren't really any routes to market for them now. There, for the arable guys, there's one flour mill and that sold 80% of their flour to a local bakery called Ramsey Bakery. And they shut their doors a few years ago now. Um, so obviously they just don't need the same amount of wheat. It's, it's not needed. Um, but in April, May, no, yeah, it must be about April, the mill turned around to farmers and said, okay, we don't need any more wheat this year. Well, sadly, that's a little bit too late. You know, they've already got everything in the ground. So now what are these farmers meant to do with everything that's in the ground? They can't pop it to their normal market. 
So the only route for them is now to export it to the mainland, to England, which is at an extortionate cost. So, you know, if they're doing that, they're not even breaking even, they're at a loss. So, so the Arab farmers there, they're kind of just like, what do we do? They've said to the government, you know, we need a road haulage equivalency scheme that has been tested out with the Scottish islands. Um, and they're just they're dragging their feet and they're taking their time. And my biggest worry is that they're going to take too long to do it. And then there's going to be no arable sector left, which, you know, that has such a massive knock on effect to every other sector, because at the end of the day, every sector within agriculture needs each other. They all work as a whole. They all might have different views on everything, but they are all as important as each other. So that's a big one. And then the dairy guys, you know, when in the UK last year, the milk price was, it was really good. Um, but you say it was really good, but actually once you pop in all of their rising costs as well, you know, it's all comparative, isn't it? So it was good. But even then, the price on the Isle of Man was lacking 11p behind. Um, and if they had decided to export it, the cost of that would have worked out about 11p. So they were kind of like, we're stuck really between a rock and a hard place, probably a bit better with it over here. And then the livestock guys to try and get their animals into the meat plant is a bit of a disaster. Um, and they'll turn around and say, no, we can't take them. Although like the week before they might have said, yeah, we'll take in 80 or say 200 or something. They'll turn around and half it. So everyone that's fattened up all those animals that are ready to go. Now they won't take them. So their only option again is to export. And for them to export one like wagon is £5,000. That's just, you know, it's they can't compete with it. If they have to do that every week, there's just no return for them. So, yeah, the, the farming. And I think the thing is, on the Isle of Man, obviously, it's incredibly highlighted because it is a relatively small place. There's 80,000 people that live there. And it's you kind of think, oh, maybe it's just a problem that we're having at home. And then the more I've gone on, the more I've spoken to people, I'm kind of like, no, this is actually a global issue. Everyone is really struggling. And I think it's very infuriating when you are somewhere that has every opportunity to be relatively self-sufficient. You know, you're doing your bit for the environment. You're cutting down on food miles. You're supporting your local economy. And it just baffles me when, you know, that isn't supported, when kind of governments try and make out that's what they want, when actually they're not really doing anything to help and support that sector. Yeah. I feel like I can literally feel like the frustration of some of the farmers that you're talking to, like coming through in your discussion here. So it's, I mean, that's definitely a really frustrating thing for a lot of them. Yeah. It's heartbreaking for them, you know, and I'd have them on the phone and, you know, these are grown men that you'd feel like, Oh God, they've got to start crying on the phone to me. And we we can be a bit British sometimes and a bit like, as soon as um, there's any emotion, but it does break your heart, you know, because it's, it's an absolute like, well, 20 years have gone into it. It's their livelihood at the end of the day. And also I find it like just mind boggling that it's the only industry that has been made to kind of rely on products like production support and the amount of farmers that are fundamentally against production support, you know, because they shouldn't, that shouldn't be there. They shouldn't need it. But without it, they can't survive. And now that's getting taken away from them. What are they going to do? You know, it's it's terrifying. So where we cover, we're in the Wisconsin area. So we we cover a lot of farmers that are dealing, especially right now with like drought. Mm-hmm. Um I think where you're at, it's kind of the opposite, right? You guys get a lot of rain and probably don't have to deal with that very much. Yeah, so our version of a drought will be much different to yours. Sure. Although, like, we had an incredibly wet spring. Like, spring was kind of non-existent, to be honest with you, from January through till 
April, it just rained and the ground, like if you'd heavy going ground, it was, you know, it wasn't looking good at all. But now we're in the complete opposite where we are in a drought as well. Um, there's been a little bit of rain, but you know, it's just kind of, as, it's not gone through at all. Yeah. So yeah, we're in a bit of a similar situation apart from it won't be quite as drastic. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about um, cover crops. So are farmers where you're located using cover crops? Is it is it a pretty common thing? Is it kind of um, like every you know what 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 percentage if you if you could estimate like how how many of these farmers are using them? Um, I would say quite a lot because you know what? I found it really funny when I was just going through kind of regenerative ag and cover crops and that kind of thing. I was like, it, to me, it was totally normal because growing up, that was just our farming practice. And I suppose I was a little bit naive in that aspect, actually, that I didn't kind of think that other people weren't doing it. I just thought everyone, you know, rotated their crops and it wasn't just cereals the whole time. Um, but I, no, I would say I would like a lot of people are now. A lot of people use cover crops. It makes sense to use it. You know, you're keeping your soil healthy. There's You can have crops in all year round. It just it's kind of really a no brainer. You've got better soil, you're going to have better crops. Sure. And it, what do you think is like the main, um, like the main reason most farmers use it? Is it like a soil health thing or is it more of like a combating like water erosion with all the like rain that you guys get or what, like what's the main draw for most of them? Would you say? I say it's a mixture and that's totally like an individual problem. Um, sure. because like, but I know for us personally, like the byproducts of it were fantastic. So like we'd have um, also rape in, we would use the um, the oil from that, we would crush it and that would end up going to fuel to power our grain dryer. Then we would also use the straw as horse bedding. Um, and then, you know, if dairy farms, they can use the pelleted like byproducts for feed. Um, so, but then I, there's a lot of good aspects to it. I'd say a lot of people do use it for soil and also like for their soil health. Um, and yeah, also for probably the byproducts they can get off it. And it just, it makes sense. If you can rotate your ground, you can have things grazing on it and then you can keep things, you know, growing. It, it's just really a bit of a no brainer, isn't it? Yeah, I definitely think so. I'm just still surprised that, you know, you still run into some farmers that just haven't, haven't done it or just don't see the benefit in it. Yeah. Um, and kind of going off of that. So I was reading a really interesting article that you wrote for Agriland. That's about the one year versus six year difference in like kind of implementing regenerative agriculture. And there's, there's these stats basically that show um, the difference between like your first year of implementing regenerative agriculture versus year six. And basically for the listeners that haven't read it, what, what it comes down to is um, a lot of these farmers may not see uh, monetary benefits from it until year five or six, or potentially even later depends on a lot of other factors, obviously, but um, I guess I kind of just want to talk about that and and maybe what are farmers' attitudes towards that, and, and are is there a um, a skepticism or, or are farmers reluctant to do it because they don't have um, that many years to give? I guess is the question. I suppose uh, um, if you mentioned to any farmer that all of a sudden it's going to take them a while to get their money back, like yeah. <laughs> you're not like, you're not going to be overly keen. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, the time aspect will be a major player in that, you know, because obviously in agriculture, cash flow is a massive issue. Um, and if you turn around and you go, look, you're going to put X, Y into this, but it's going to take you, say, six years to get the money back. 
I can't really blame them for being a bit apprehensive of getting into it. And I'd say, yeah, that definitely does play a massive part in it. And I've actually, I've got that article right in front of me now. So I can just have a quick wander over it and quick look And it. Yeah, it's the positives from once they've gone through that six year of it maybe being a bit rough and having to accept a little bit of a lower yield for a while. It pays off in the long term, but it's with anything, isn't it? It depends if people want to go through the long term with it. Yeah. I just thought those stats were really interesting. Cause like you said, you can totally see by the end of it, like it is absolutely worth it. It's just a matter of, can you push through those, those tricky years for a bit? Yeah. And I suppose it all just comes down to like the price they're getting, doesn't it? They don't have, say if they were actually getting a fair price for their product and were able to make a decent wage and then it would probably be a bit more open minds, but when they're constantly on the breadline, you're not, they're not going to want to sacrifice those years already making like when they're barely just like functioning like with the cost of production and everything so yeah it's a hard one for them isn't it and that's, it depends also kind of what soil you're on like yeah. for how long it's going to take them actually because like for us we're really lucky because we're on sand so all of our arable ground is fantastic um but if you're like if you're on a clay farm you know it's going to take yeah. you a bit longer if you have a bit of a dodgy spring you, you wouldn't want to be juggling with that those um those kind of variables really would you right going off that like the different types of soils what are the most common um like species of cover crops you guys see is it a lot of like brassicas and grasses out there or is it kind of a little of everything um kind of everything um to be honest with you like there's there's a lot of um a lot of grasses grown um like we would have it as hay um so we'd have ryegrass in clover is very popular um a lot of people do use clover um, and then also mustard is grown on the Isle of Man, um, kind of as a green yob for potatoes. Um, so, yeah. And also, no, we do a lot of people do use beans, too. So they're kind of the ones that are used at home. So do you guys use, um, am I correct saying use oats? Yeah, yeah, some do. Depends on the, obviously depends on the region. But, yeah, it's not uncommon. Yeah. So no, that's that's kind of what we would use would be really clover or um, grass or beans, I suppose. We'll come back to the conversation in a moment, but first I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, GoSeed, the source of novel solutions for your growing concerns. Get more nitrogen with their high-performing annual clovers, Fixation Balanza, Frosty Burzine, Enhanced Persian, and Kentucky Pride Crimson. Unrivaled for their nitrogen contributions, these clovers are exceptionally drought and cold tolerant. GoSeed rigorously vets their products in a wide range of conditions to ensure confidence in their performance. Visit GoSeed.com to learn how these clovers can lower input costs, increase yields, and mitigate climate change. That's GoSeed.com, home of novel solutions for your growing concerns. And now, let's get back to the discussion with Charlie Moore. Uh, you talked about tillage earlier. Is is no-till a thing out there? Like, are are, are there farmers that are doing no-till? Or yeah, it- that, that's definitely a thing. Um, and like for us, with our farm practices at home, you know, we try and keep the soil like really invasion to a minimum. Like even you know, if the ground's a bit dodgy and you have to drive over it a lot, you're constantly just a bit like, you know, it's not doing really the best thing for compacting the soil. Um, so yeah, no-till is is a thing over here and i think also like kind of across the uk it's starting to be a bit more um a bit more recognized and 
I was on the phone to an algal farm the other day and we were actually talking about his biomass. So totally something off the subject. Um, but he was just saying one of his friends and they're up in Northumberland, so near Newcastle, um, so northeast of England. And he was saying that, no, one of his friends has really just got into regenerative farming and he's been like singing from the rooftops to everyone that will listen. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think it is becoming more of a, an accepted practice now. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we cover a lot of no-tillers out here. So it's always interesting to me um, to see kind of around the world how much it's being adopted. Yeah, I think it just all comes down to good farming practices at the end of the day. Like, to me, it's not, I don't really think it's rocket science. You know, it's kind of like, look after your ground and it'll it'll repay you. But if right. you constantly plant the same cereal in time and time and time again, you know, you're giving it no time to recover. So you can't expect it to be throwing out the best yields. It's just not going to happen. It's not realistic. Yeah. It's the old saying of leaving this, leaving the soil better than you found it for the future generations. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, I, I won't hold you too much longer. Just a couple more questions for you, but um, actually how I kind of found Agriland and, and, found some of your work was uh, the Guinness article that you wrote that was about the regenerative agriculture pilot program they're running. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Guinness wants to focus on the reduction of their greenhouse gases, and it's now entering its second year of um, its circulation with its own farm. Um, So it sowed cover crops last autumn to protect their land and their barley. Um, And Guinness did claim it had been able to see this absorbed a significant amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and that it would usually go into the water, but it's now able to be recycled into the next crop. Um, And yeah, it was just really cool that they're actually able to do that now. And they kind of have their own farm and they're doing their own thing. And um, they've had listening devices that will be placed on selected farms that will record the sounds from birds and pollinators. So I think they're just very much kind of like everyone that's, you know, there's a massive push on the climate at the minute. And I think Guinness aren't alone, actually. There's quite a few big companies across Ireland and the UK now that are really getting behind it. And also, like, if they need, you know, cereals or what have you for their products, again, really on board with the gen- gen- um, regenerative agriculture. Um, but Guinness have 44 different farms that they're now analysing and are able to kind of like reduce their emissions without compromising yields or quality, whilst at the same time removing carbon from the air. Um, and their next milestone is examining how the fertilizer selection can reduce emissions and the establishment of baseline biodiversity measurements. So yeah, that's kind of like what Guinness are on at the minute, which is, it's cool. It's really cool to see a company so big taking it so seriously. Yeah, I think it I think it does a lot for smaller farmers to see, like you said, a big company like that that can actually make a big difference. I mean, it's obviously great to see smaller farmers adopting these principles, too. But um, I think when big companies like that really uh, put their money where their mouth is, it's 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 huge because that's that's where it can actually make a huge difference. Yeah, of course, like be the change you want to see in the world. And like they are definitely doing that. And it's nice that it's not just lip service, you know, because at the end of the day, they're giving something back as well to their local community and, their, and farmers. And I kind of that's something I think often does sometimes get a little bit lost with big companies. You know, some of them sometimes forget where actually their biggest market is and kind of how they can give back to it. And, you yeah, know, Guinness have done a great job doing that. I think it's, it's fantastic to see. Absolutely. All right. Well, Charlie, this has been awesome. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't covered yet? 
No, I think I could probably just honestly rant all day about the cost of production and fair prices that farmers are not getting. <laughs> that is my absolute bugbear. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that is something I could rant about all day, but I appreciate not that everyone might want to listen. No, I mean, it's important stuff and yeah, maybe we'll, uh, we'll revisit it sometime soon and, and see what kind of progress is being made and hopefully it'll be, uh, some good news, right? We live in hope, but like, <laughs> you know, the UK government today announced that interest rates have gone to a record high and it's again, something else that people tend not to think about, but if you think how many farmers, their farms are on big mortgages or, you know, even just like when they have machinery and they have to buy it. I was talking to a farmer the other day and this is a terrifying statistic for me. He bought a new combine two years ago on a six month, no, on a six year plan. Um, and the interest on it at the time, no six year fixed term, sorry. The interest on it at the time was £24,000. If he had done that same deal today, it was just over 70000 That's purely on interest. You know, that, and they're all dealing with that. And also the cost of machinery in general has skyrocketed. It's just, there's no words for it. Yeah. But that is just a huge, huge lump in two years, the price difference. So anyone now that's wanting to go and replace new machinery, you know, you have to, you can't be going around with things that aren't functional. They have to keep up with the times. And sadly, that's so expensive. You know, you see people going around and like in a nice big sports car and you think, oh, that'd be a nice new tractor there. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's one of the things that I think I took for granted when I first I mentioned I'm, I'm somewhat new to the industry. But I mean, I just had no idea um, how just how expensive some of that stuff gets. And it's it's outrageous. That's mad. And then like, you know, fertilizer. I'm not sure. Did you guys have also the same issue with fertilizer, the price of it last year? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of growers were were looking and still are looking at at any possible ways to reduce uh, the amount of fertilizer they're using, just because it it would be a huge um, area that they could save in money wise. Yeah, like with us, it started it normally would be about 200, 250 pounds a ton, um, and then it went up to a thousand pounds a ton if you could get your hands on it, and it was just like I remember when it came through. And dad was like, no, no, this can't be right. It can't be right. And my brother and I were like, what? And he said it. And we were like, no, sure, that's not right. It must just be one merchant. And then spoke around and we were like, no, wait, this is happening everywhere. Like, And, you know, price of food and the price people, like farmers were getting for their produce, it did not stay in line with that. And I think that's the thing that you're kind of like, what are they going to do? And also the fuel here went through the roof, everything, just every input cost you could possibly think of went lows also with energy. Um, that's something that I actually find like, renewable energy a really interesting one um for farmers because there's so much they can do so many crops they can grow to produce energy and it just sort of seems to be a bit overlooked it does here um i think that is something that's incredibly frustrating when you know it's kind of like well if you don't want us to be food producers because <laughs> you don't want to pay for it well then we can be energy producers but no don't seem to want that either so it's a bit like what what do they want are there any big stories you're working on right now like what's the what's the upcoming future look like for you Upcoming future. Um, oof, what does it look like? Just trying to keep in line with everything that's coming in really from the EU at the minute. Um, it's just, it's constant. It's an industry that never really stops and everyone's yeah. kind of released their milk prices. So I need to go back and have a little look at that. Um, and also on the UK side, um, I did a story the other day, which was quite interesting of how Brexit had actually affected farmers. And because you know what it's like, you see the news everywhere 
as soon as a big outlet gets it, you know, Brexit's been the worst thing that's ever happened to us, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, well, I kind of want to go speak to people and actually see how much of an effect has it actually made on them. Um, and the majority of them just said, you know, that's not our biggest issue whatsoever at the minute is purely the input costs and everything like that. Um, and, you know, it has definitely made life more difficult for livestock farmers. Um, but, you know, I think there was a bit of a concern regarding animal welfare standards and kind of the markets they were going to be selling to and dealing with. Um, but I think I think a few of them kind of hadn't quite realised that even when in the EU, it wasn't just EU countries that were trading then, you know. So obviously it's quite spoken about with, you know, for example, like Brazil or Australia, like the animal welfare standards are there, but everyone's still trading with each other. So yeah, it was it was really interesting. Um, but they've all it has made it difficult for people wanting to, you know, export animals. I know for me personally, like with horses, um, when I've wanted to compete mine or even just bring them over to Ireland, like it is a lot more difficult now from outside and the cost of it with health papers and everything, which you know, you get it, it's it's totally fine. Um, but it's made that side a bit more expensive. But for arable farmers there's a toll they've not really noticed any difference so like yeah it's a bit more difficult to get chemicals in um and there was a big worry that it was going to affect land values um i spoke to a land agent and a surveyor and they were saying no actually like the the market is still completely buoyant it's fine so yeah it was, it was really interesting actually the kind of actually did is brexit the biggest issue going at the minute no <laughs> yeah they seem to have got over it and the one thing that all of them could agree on whether they wanted to be in it or out of it was kind of like the government like they just sort of need to kind of get their acts together and yep. they've been holding everything up and it's like come on we've made the decision let's get on with it and get everything sorted but there seems to be a bit of lack of um motivation really i think to kind yeah. of get sorted that is really interesting i hadn't considered how how that could have affected the the world of agriculture if you will mm. but that's, yeah that's interesting yeah just trade markets but i think i was told the other day that actually like say i for example their biggest biggest market really they always are importing or exporting to the uk so it's a bit like well has it made that much of a difference because everything's still moving kind of as it yeah. was um so yeah that's <laughs> that's my thoughts on it anyway Cool. Well, anyway, thanks a lot for uh, for taking the time. This has been awesome. Um, everyone go check out Agriland, uh, Charlie Mori, uh, multimedia journalist. So uh, go check out some of these awesome articles. Thank you very much for having me. Big thanks to Charlie Mori for today's discussion. The full transcript of the episode will be available at CoverCropStrategies.com slash podcasts. Many thanks to our sponsor, GoSeed, for helping to make this Cover Crop podcast series possible. From all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening and have a great day.